this show is for the climate community. Those who are aware of, engaged with, concerned about, basically doing anything about the climate crisis. It's not necessarily for podcast nerds. But if you're anything like me, the acronyms PRX or NHPR or NPR make you excited. And today, in this episode, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning, because I got to speak to two people from NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio, who work on a show called Outside In, distributed on PRX, the public radio exchange. And even better than talking to the people who make the stuff I listen to, they make a climate show, and a damn good one. In this episode, you're going to hear all about this new miniseries called Windfall, and of course, you're going to want to check it out. So please, find a link to Windfall, which is on the outside in feed, right at the top of the show notes, and you're going to want to stick around for this whole hour of talking podcasts, climate, storytelling, and how we can engage with this new clean energy revolution that's happening around us, and that's finally, finally happening in the U.S., and what we here in Australia and New Zealand can learn from it and apply. All right, settle in. Headphones on. Enjoy. Music in this episode is Time is a Flower Part 1, The Dream Refused to Stay the Same, by Selfless Orchestra, and Town Market, by Blue Dot Sessions. Hello and welcome to Climactic. Today we're thrilled to welcome two members of the U.S. podcast community. I'm your host, as always, Mark. Let's get started. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's of great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Outside In is a show about the natural world and how we use it. It's a wonderful show and one I'll be diving into the rich catalog from in due course. Today we're talking a new five-part series on Outside In with two of its creators. Jack Rodolico has spent his career in public radio and podcasting, producing narrative-driven investigative journalism that delivers an emotional impact. He's a recipient of more than a dozen local and national awards, including a National Edward R. Murrow Award, and finalist nods from the Scripps Howard Foundation and the Dart Award for Excellence in Coverage of Trauma. Annie Ropeek is the Environment and Energy Reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Get used to the acronym NHPR now. She joined NHPR's reporting team in 2017, following stints with public radio stations and collaborations across the country. She's reported everywhere from fishing boats, island villages, and cargo terminals in Alaska, to cornfields, factories, and Superfund sites in the Midwest. Hello both and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of an independent collective of podcasts from Australia and New Zealand engaging with climate change. And to get us started, I'd love to know kind of what Australia and New Zealand mean to the two of you. Uh, what's a favorite thing you've got from Australia and New Zealand? It could be high art. I was thinking before it could be uh, road microphones like the one I'm speaking into now. It could be the great documentary Mad Max. It's up to you. Uh, Jack, to get started. 
this is the kind of question that you, you you'll really show your ignorance. Um, so, but the thing that comes to mind is uh, Whale Rider. Mm, excellent my wife introduced choice. me to that movie years ago. Do, is that local? Like so, locally, so my it's my a mother the the reason I'm Kiwi and not just you know an American pretending to be Kiwi. My mom mom's Kiwi and from the East Cape, and and from you know well near it still would have taken four hours by gravel roads to get to that that village mm. in the movie but um somewhat okay. geographically close i love that movie it's it feels like one of those timeless things and my i was introduced to it much later in life it was like my wife's companion through her childhood so mm. i love it that's the one i'll say that very good choice okay annie that was a strong strong start from jack yeah, I haven't thought about Whale Rider in years. That's a great movie. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your American guests say this, but I associate New Zealand with Lord of the Rings. Um, I would mm. love to go and do that sort of tour sometime. I should also note that I've seen the band Five Seconds of Summer several times in concert as a consequence of seeing One Direction in concert, but that's also Australian, so I'll give you that too. One for each of us. That's perfect. Thank you very much. Cracking in here, I've actually got the trailer for Windfall teed up. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. None. Right now, there are seven offshore wind turbines spinning off the east coast of the United States. Seven. But if everything goes according to plan, in less than 10 years, there could be thousands. The economics of climate change have shifted. Big money is pivoting away from fossil fuels, and it's often moving towards one solution in particular, offshore wind. Everything about offshore wind is big. The stakes are big. Now to a dire warning about climate change. The emotions are huge. I'm asking you to be heroes here. Make a few sacrifices. And the technology is enormous. These turbines are so big, they don't even really fit on land. Each is taller than the Washington Monument. In fact, offshore wind is so big, it's shaking up our ideas of who is breaking the Earth's climate and who is positioned to fix it. Because some of these giant corporations looking to capitalize on offshore wind, companies like BP and Shell, they are the same companies who arguably got us into this mess in the first place. Like, I feel like you see these ads from BP that are like, oh, BP means beyond petroleum, and I just want to, like, throw up. <laughs> um, but I guess we could think of it more in the sense of, like, the renewable economy is the economy of the future. After decades of politicization and red tape, America is about to witness the birth of an industry offshore wind. And no matter how you might feel about it, this change is coming. So what is it going to take to make you agree? Um, and I said, there is no price. I do not want to see one wind turbine in the water. Not one. I'm uh, calm and relaxed. It's not in my hands, but I'm so eager to get moving and actually start building. This June, NHPR's award-winning podcast, Outside In, presents Windfall, a deep dive into a sea change on the horizon. Subscribe to Outside In wherever you get your podcasts, and look for episodes of Windfall to start dropping on June 24th. Learn more at windfallpodcast.org.
So I, I've heard the first two published episodes of the, the five-part series that have been published as of uh, the time of recording, 7th of July. And the first is about sort of the size of offshore wind, both the turbines and the number of turbines in the world and being installed in other places and the size of the developments and how it's increasing and, and why all those turbines have that familiar three-blade design we can all picture. It was fantastic. And then the second episode is all about sort of the last three decades of legislation in the U.S., sort of illustrated through this one project in New England and its kind of powerful NIMBY dynamic that was happening there with with Kennedy in opposition to the program, uh, to the project, sorry. And sort of for a local comparison to New Zealand and Australia, that's like trying to install a wind farm in like the northern beaches of Sydney or Bondi inside of Chris Hemsworth's house. Like it was very audacious. One thing I was noticing is as I kind of wrote that bio of the first two episodes this morning is I didn't mention the Native American artifact aspect. And, and there's this, in the second episode, a big aspect of it. So to, to bring you both in, and it's very timely for our listeners here, because in Australia, it's the start of NADOC week, which is the week of sort of Aboriginal, I guess, acknowledgement, and actually like, like talking about Australia in the context of Aboriginal culture and occupation, like, like life there for tens of thousands of years. So can I ask you both how it kind of felt for you personally, kind of talking about that aspect of the project and how you mentally, I guess, made space to include that in this, this otherwise, you know, the wind conversation. But like, Sure. Um, on that story of Cape Wind, which for people who aren't familiar, was supposed to be the first wind, large scale, like a power plant of wind turbines, right, in the ocean in U.S. history, and uh, it never happened. It took a decade and a half for it to never happen. It was such an ugly fight, um, and but it got tremendous coverage, international coverage, because when it was first proposed, it was actually going to be the first offshore wind farm in the world, um, commercial utility scale. So it was a hot thing to cover. I mean, and it, it was interesting. Um, and, you know, one of the things I did when digging into that story was, I went back to uh, the big local paper, the Boston Globe, and went back to the beginning of their coverage and read every story, basically, that they did for 17 years, and, and a bunch of other papers too, but primarily that one. And that was really striking because I did not see Native American, their, their issues with the wind farm covered very much at all. Um, you know, it there there are some reasons for that because it was complicated there was a lot of layers however like i won't give anybody a pass like there it was a pretty big deal that um two different native american tribes both had very similar issues you know the big one being that um essentially there was going to be an industrial wind park in the middle of where their were archaeological remains where there believed archaeological remains of their people going back to the last ice age right so um so it was interesting to, and yet when I talked to people um, who really were close to Cape Wind, a couple of reporters who covered it, the the the, the opponents and the op, and the supporters, like you know, people are really on the front lines. All of them said when I, you know when I said, "Can you pick out like the three four moments of this you know decade and a half that really stand out as game changers?" Um, everybody to a person said when the federal government came out and said that the Wampanoag have a legit claim here, that this is, uh, you know, it essentially was put on a list of historic places that should be preserved by the federal government. Um, 
And so there was this spike in stories about it when that happened um, in 2010. Um, but they didn't have a lot of nuance and it, they tended to actually just cover it from the wrong angle, frankly, when, I, when, when we look back at what the substantive issue was. Um, they actually focused on the photo op. They focused on the thing that was easy to cover, which was one of the regulators from the Obama administration came up to see the Wampanoag and they had this sunrise ceremony where they stand on the beach and watch the sunrise. And, and they, that was, it was kind of caricatured of like the, the bureaucrat and the Native Americans standing together going through the like, quote, ceremony, when in fact it was a legal issue. I mean, it was like on the ground, this is potentially an archeological site, don't build there was the concern. So it honestly felt somewhat satisfying to like cent to go back and center their story. Um, you know, it, it is a complicated story. There's a lot of angles. They were not the only reason that wind farm did not happen by a long shot. However, they were a pretty big part of it and not arguably <laughs> they were there first. So starting with them, um, you know, made a lot of sense. So surprising, not surprising to see them sort of forgotten from the narrative in real time um written out of it um and yet it felt really important to give them the first word on this whole thing um annie when it came to reporting out this project were there any kind of lessons learned that you know will be applied to future projects on how to sort of look for the indigenous that the native angle to a especially renewables or a climate story and the way those are going to be addressed or centered in future stories yeah, I mean, it's a really important theme and one I think I've been really happy with how we have centered just sort of equity and inclusion questions um, throughout the series. Like, I, um, you know, the indigenous angle comes up a lot in the Cape Wind episode and then in, in subsequent episodes that will be released soon, we just talk more about the idea of environmental racism generally and, and what it looks like to try to ensure that communities that have been marginalized um, and have taken the brunt of pollution impacts in the past, how they can get a disproportionate benefit from those actions to correct those issues, to try to kind of balance those scales. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it is just a, you know, sort of skill I've had to train myself to do as a climate reporter in all kinds of stories, like from a minute long newscast item to a huge project like this one. Um, is you have to be really intentional about centering that. And that's kind of something I've learned um, in talking to environmental justice scholars also is like the whole point of correcting environmental racism is that intentionality and, you know, the uh, just doing policies for like citing a wind farm or for distributing jobs, doing those sort of by the book and how they've always been, you know, in the States, like you're going to encounter a lot of systemic issues that have perpetuated the inequalities that we see in those spaces. And so being intentional about how you design those policies, how you design projects, and of course, how you cover them um, as a journalist, you know, is a step in correcting that. So it's been a really good exercise, yeah, to try to keep it centered. And, you know, it'd be so easy for this show to just be all white men. It's a very white man centered space. And so, um, so I was happy, I mean, to hear that Jack focused so much on the um, Wampanoag part of the narrative for the Cape Wind story, for sure. The decision to kind of put these two stories together in this one episode, I thought it was such a deliberate, conscious, and and even in my own retelling of it, I, I'm totally caught in the trap of like, 
I want to talk about the fact there's a Kennedy being talked about, and it's such a, like a the headline attention grabbing thing. It's juicy. Yeah, it's yeah. juicy. Everyone in the world knows the name Kennedy, and yeah, I love that that it's very much talked about here. And then that that classic NIMBY narrative is totally undercut by. So it is your backyard, Jack, or you know whatever the. I assume it was a Jack because it's a Kennedy, but whatever his first name was. Ted. It's a Ted and a Robert. <laughs> and a Robert. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, the two Kennedys in the narrative, and then. And that that's totally undercut by like, yeah, sure, it's your backyard currently, but we're talking about the people who've lived here for millennia, <laughs> for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And it just really cuts them out at the knees, that, that NIMBY debate of like, okay, the reason you don't want it is you don't want it to affect your life and your kids and your legacy. But this is people talking about their ancestry and the lineage and culture and history and their entire way of seeing the world. Um, was that a really conscious thing of like, here's how we can kind of undercut the classic NIMBY narrative? Because we, we're all familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I think um, I think for one, it's it's just all it's always a challenge, a, a good kind. It's these are satisfying stories to do these sort of retrospective reports on something that is completely litigated, right, and and done because. Typically, the people involved want to talk. <laughs> you know, they don't have anything at stake anymore. Um, the lawsuits are settled or, or eliminated. Um, but it is tricky if you are not a person who, like, reported on it actively when it happened to just figure out w- what even is important in this story. Um, but so that's number one. Um, so I, I, for I think we really had to prove to ourselves, like, how big... Uh, a part of the story was was the Native American opposition to it um, because it was just hard in retrospect to was that in fact bigger than the opposition of the governor of the state it was in the the state senior senator in you know I mean those that's pretty that's a pretty big deal um, but um, yes in retro it was very clear that it, it was very important. Um, and also, I think that part of the deliberate decision comes in what you tell listeners first. You know, we really worked hard to, I think it's important to never work, to always work hard, and in this story in particular, to not say, you know, here's what we think you know about X. It could be about a politician, it could be about anybody, but in this story, well, here's what we think you know about Cape Wind. Um, the assumption is let's just assume people don't know anything about it. Or if they do, they have like a thing in their like, oh, what was that? It was a wind farm? Like did, somebody didn't like, you know, just it, people don't. Yeah, people don't follow these things like insiders, you know. And so um, people, the way you frame a lot of times the choice you make in structuring a story is like the first thing you tell them does frame it, you know. So I think you have to be careful about that. Be confident in it. And also like really avoid tropes and you know, cliches. And we wanted to challenge that narrative that it was just a NIMBY story. Um, because even the people, all of the people most closely involved, whether Native American, the guy who wanted to build the wind farm, the people, the other locals who hated it, um, and the journalists, all of them said this was not a NIMBY story. And it was infuriating to have the national press come in and constantly say that it was. It was more nuanced than that. So that it, so yeah, the decision is to, uh, Find the voice you want to center first to let that be the introduction to people. Is that is that fair? In this case, I think it was. Um, and then a little later in, you can say, um, here's what the press said about all this. 
you know, but you kind of want to start with where the story actually starts. Uh, well, often, you know, there's a lot of ways to tell a story, but in this instance, it felt like starting with the Wampanoag was true to the story and um, probably helpful to people who didn't know anything about it rather than put their head in the box of the cliches about the story. One thing I would add on that that I think is so interesting about, like, the idea of how nuanced that situation actually was. I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight. Like I lived on Cape Cod sort of in the midst of Cape Wind when it was in very procedural steps and like stories were just, it was in the phase I think that one of the reporters we talked to says where every day we would put out an update that says it might happen next year, that that just kept going and going. It is hard to get that perspective on it. And this was, you know, the way that the country was introduced to offshore wind. And that's part of why the story comes at the beginning. I mean, chronologically, but also, like when I've been covering wind in the Northeast just this year, as it's really been taking off, people, I mean, Cape Wind is very much still on people's minds and the, the sort of the echoes of the NIMBY perception really like have stuck around and tainted how the industry has continued to grow, how people think about it. Like, so I think bringing that kind of nuance to it and helping people like think more critically about how they get their opinions about a topic like this is really valuable more so than just, yeah, like, it is where the story starts, but it's also just a really interesting sort of parable in a lot of ways. That's wonderful. Feel free in the course of this interview to really go into that, the thought behind how you structure the stories, how you tell these stories, because you, anyone who's listening to this episode, they're 100% going to be listening to Windfall. They're going to be hearing these stories themselves. I know that because they've heard that trailer and that, that got me as soon as I heard it. I was like, this is brilliant. And that first episode, I really love that this series started with this kind of meta episode where... I know that there's a disclosure involved, which we'll talk about, and sort of the makeup of the team and what the team is going on to do. I just really loved this series was being talked about before you even heard it. And it was, you know, not only setting it up through a, a teaser and a trailer, but this is like, you know, I'm, I'm a podcaster. I like to geek out, and I got to kind of geek out with you guys in that episode and now with you live. So any of that sort of podcast geeking you want to do, feel free to let that come out. We'll make this accommodation kind of transom episode and climate podcasting episode. So what was the goal for the series? And I'm like, yo, I'm two fifths of the way through. I'm really excited about where it goes from here. But in terms of like the reportage and the, you know, is it just yeah reporting or is it sort of public education of how we got here? Or is it kind of advocacy for what comes next or a blend of all three? my impression of the series when I was on the outside of it as it was sort of being reported for the first couple of years that it was going on was um, kind of a deep dive into this particular project Vineyard Wind which is going on um, also in Massachusetts um, now that's really the first project in the U.S. to kind of reach the construction stage and um, as I began to work on the series I realized it was about so much more really about the birth of the offshore wind industry in the country why it took so long to get here and like the climate policy, you know, economic, cultural, all the implications of just what it looks like to have a giant new economic sector like that be born and how fraught that is. Um, and I, I remember, Jack, there was like a post-it note or some note that someone found recently with a little outline of what the series was supposed to be about. Do you remember what I'm no, talking about? No, What did it say? I, I think our... One of our producers, Taylor, I'm going to, we can like cut this part out if you want to. I'm going to go try to look while Jack, you can talk about your yeah, sure, sure. early thoughts about the series the, if you want. The, the Taylor Quimby's a name I know. I can't imagine being a person yeah. who found a post-it. <laughs> yeah. A Taylor Quimby post-it. We're going to sell it on eBay. 
So maybe I'll chat a little while you look that up, Annie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go for it. You know, Outside In a few years ago did a series on uh, a power line. It was called Powerline. Uh, it's about a lot more than that, but it was about a huge hydropower project that was going to bring power from Canada into the United States. And it, um, it was a really layered story about sort of a topical news issue that was going on a lot. So it was a deep dive. Um, but, you know, energy stories are really important and really opaque. I mean, they are just so hard to understand, to make interesting, even though they are critically uh, important. You know, we're talking about like where we get our electricity from, um, you know, that affects your life a great deal on a day-to-day -day basis. And on top of that, climate change and this massive transition towards renewable energy, it, it's all really important, um, but, it's, but it's opaque. It's, it's hard to understand. It's certainly hard to tell a story about, um, but that's part of what Outside In does. So after the success of Powerline, our colleague who recently left, former colleague now, Sam Evans-Brown, you know, he said he felt like the next thing to do if we're going to continue to do another series on energy was offshore wind because it was clear that there was going to be a lot of offshore wind built very quickly in the United States. And so what Sam did was essentially like follow the first project in that pipeline over the course of a couple of years, gather tape as he could. And then I came on board once he had done a great deal of the reporting, Annie came on a little bit after that. And the goal isn't really, I mean, it's certainly not to like advocate for a position. I mean, in terms of like climate change, that's not a debatable fact. I mean, it would take that as like concrete science, right? And so we're not advocating for renewable energy to be built and developed. We're reporting on the fact that it is being developed. And whatever you think about that, however you feel about that, almost kind of doesn't matter, hopefully. Like you can just listen to this and say, you know, this is a massive new industry that's going to be created incredibly quickly in, in the United States. There are going to be winners. There are going to be losers. There are some really quirky and uniquely American political angles to how it's been politicized um, in ways that are actually quite surprising and don't fall along the typical lines of Democrats are for wind and Republicans are against it. Um, you know, I, I do that in air quotes. Um, and, um, you know, ultimately it's about climate change. And I think part of the goal of the series was to tell a timely story about climate change that is actually focused on a solution. Um, again, it's not a judgment about that solution, but uh, climate change reporting is climate change is dire and reporting on it is hard to read and listen to because of that. It's a, it's a pretty hard story. Um, not to say we shouldn't just because of that, but it felt kind of satisfying to have a climate story that felt like it was just more than that. You know, it wasn't just looking at this awful thing that is in the background and that creates a lot of the stakes for the story. But ultimately, you know, it's pretty much straight reporting through the lens of how do we tell this story in the way that hooks people the best? You know, what's the way to unfold and unpack the concepts that are kind of esoteric, like, you know, um, in a way that is actually sort of satisfying and you get a sense of the people who are involved and maybe care about them no matter where they are in the, in the um, you know, see that they're human, you know. I found, so Taylor Quimby, who's our, senior producer you're the senior producer jack taylor is one of our amazing producers who uh does a lot of the mixing for the show and is a sound wizard he sent us a picture of a note 
uh, he found in a notebook from like an old outside an episode, an episode he did about veganism, like at least a couple of years ago, um, where him and Sam Evans Brown, the uh, my co-hosts on the show, were brainstorming some sort of wind project, and they wrote, "Why here? Why now? Who benefits and who doesn't? Why here? Why now? Who benefits and who doesn't?" And like, that's the frame, pretty much. And then, yeah, I mean, I just on the climate change stakes, like, I think that's been something I've focused on a lot in the editing process is just reminding people why this matters beyond you know a lot of money and a lot of like jobs and physical you know impacts to the ocean and to coastal communities but beyond all of that um sort of the why you should care um and especially if you're not in one of those coastal communities you're not getting one of those jobs etc i spoke with a climatologist uh, the state climatologist in vermont a few years ago, and she told me something that's really stuck with me for my sort of frame of how I cover climate change. And that was that you basically cover it from three angles, or you, the whole conversation takes place in three ways, which is the causes of the problem, the impacts of the problem, and our strategies or the responses for dealing with it. And that she felt like the third one, the strategies are what the media writ large really emphasizes the least and that what, you know, are what demands the most extra reporting. And so, yeah, I agree with Jack. It does feel really valuable and satisfying to do a deep dive on such a huge solution that is so hard to unpack and that so pe so many people have so many preconceptions about at such a crucial moment for it in this country, especially. Can I ask about the name? What does windfall mean to both of you? Hopefully a title does several things for you and leaves it a little open to interpretation. So I think it sort of suggests a windfall, right, is, is a huge benefit. Also, maybe just like some downstream effects, you know, and I think that this is kind of a watershed moment where a lot will change really quickly. So it sort of implies money, it implies change, sort of implies a lot happening quickly. And that doesn't always work out great for everyone. I let, the suddenness of it, that's what I always get from it the most is, yeah, a lot happening at once and a way that, that clearly benefits one party a great deal and maybe has some collateral damages or at least just people who are caught up in it along the sidelines that's and fantastic. that's a lot of what we talk um, about so i really loved your answer there around you know as a station and as a team once there's acknowledgement of climate change this sort of reporting project on just a an emerging industry is is really depoliticized. Like, of course, you'd cover it. It's like if, you know, there was a new Silicon Valley opening in the Northeast, of course, it would be covered. If, if you know, there was just any kind of new industry, it, it deserves this kind of coverage. But I'm sure that there is, you know, sometimes you want to kind of say more or, or go further than you potentially can within sort of your remit as a, a show and a production team within a public radio station and... Maybe this is an opportunity to quickly talk about Sam and, you know, Andy, your, your co-host, and the sort of the disclaimer at the start of the series about uh, what he's going on to do. And why this is of particular interest to me is Climactic and the Climactic Collective are all independent shows. We can kind of very much do what we want, which means advocacy and sort of, you know, not have those bounds, which I think is counterproductive sometimes because without any bounds, it's sort of hard to know what to do. If you don't know what to sort of butt up against, you're not sure how far to go sometimes. Can we talk about that sort of disclaimer where Sam 
is going, has gone at the end of this uh, this windfall series and why we're not going to hear his dulcet tones on Outside In anymore. So Sam Evans-Brown was, I think we're calling him the founding host of Outside In. Um, I actually applied uh, for like a founding job on the podcast when I was a baby reporter like years ago when it first started. And it was just Sam like making it happen at, at HPR. You know, he had glasses and he didn't have his babies yet but it was just sam and um you know years later uh it's very bittersweet to say goodbye to him i mean he really created something fantastic here with an amazing team who will continue to make the show might sound a little different but it'll still keep going but yeah sam is going to go um be a clean energy advocate he's going to go work uh, for an advocacy group um it, it was unfortunate timing for sam it kind of came about really late in the process it sort of fell in his lap um you know just literally like weeks a matter of weeks ago and moved really quickly he had hoped to be able to stay through the end of uh our production for the um series and the end of it coming out and obviously separate that from his new job but um we've had to sort of make some choices about you know yeah and that was so that was part of why i came on as a co-host was to basically provide um an extra journalistic voice for the show um an outside perspective to make sure that it was airtight in terms of any bias fairness um that there was nothing creeping in that um could it could impugn the show kind of given what sam is going on to do and um just to sort of like break that binary down i mean the way we've been thinking about the difference between journalism and advocacy in this context is that um, a journalist uh, presents the relevant facts and arguments about a topic or a story, you know, they may talk about a topic in a certain way or like in a certain, you know, relative to a certain other topic, that would be an angle. Um, and they let you as the listener decide what you think about everything that you were just told, whereas an advocate is being paid to tell you to think a certain thing about it, to support a certain argument or outcome of that topic. And that's what Sam is going on to do, likely including offshore wind. So we wanted to make sure that that was not going to color the show at all. Um, you know, Sam's a professional, I think, left to his own devices. Like, he would have felt fine about it, but we wanted to be really transparent with our listeners and how we had handled it. We hired an outside fact checker, brought me in. We've had tons of extra editors on the show and have that disclaimer that's that runs with the episodes and is on the podcast feed. Sam is not going to, you know, have his hands on it anymore. Certainly once he starts his new job and he pretty much doesn't have his hands on it now that he has left NHPR, we might have him come in and record a couple extra things, but he's he's out of the mix editorially and yeah, I mean that was important to us to just make clear because we do think of this as journalism and not advocacy outside in relative to what I do in our newsroom, I think is more like commentary, but is still not hard advocacy. Um, it may not be hard news, but so, so for example, I worked on an episode of Outside In with Sam um, a couple, a year and a half or so ago about um, the uh, Republican politics of climate change kind of through the lens of this um, uh, important family in New Hampshire state politics who have all sort of had different roles to play in the story of Republican climate politics in interesting ways. Um, 
And there were things as we were scripting it that like Sam would give to me to say or not, depending on just like a little bit how um, commentary-ish that they were, or if it was a little bit like Sam was kind of making a judgment call about, or, or some, you know, something a little flip maybe even about like our current governor, he would put that in his part of the script instead of mine. Um, so there was already a little bit of a difference there, but um you know, it's just kind of continued in, in this context and, um, you know, allowed me to work on the show, which I'm happy about. That's really interesting to see how that dynamic develops over time, sort of as a host, how open you can be with, with what you think and, and how much of that you bring to to what you put on the mic is uh, is very interesting. And um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a whole episode in that, how you walk that line and, and who it is for each person. Let's jump over to you, Jack, and sort of with you sort of seeing how the project developed over time. A devil's advocate question with this series about offshore wind, could you have seen NHPR getting behind a five-part series on the nuclear industry? And I'm sure someone else has asked that before, but like, I'm kind of interested in like, there's a lot I don't know about the industry. There's a lot of facts and myths and suppositions and potentially it's going to grow, although it definitely seems more dubious than offshore wind. So maybe the answer is just no. But how do you respond to that question? Not only, I mean, I think anything is possible. And that is actually something that came up recently, like not in a not in a like a way that we're planning or anything like that. But, um, you know, if in theory, this is very speculative as you know, I'm not speaking for the institution, right, or the people I work with. But like, let's say, you know, it makes sense to do a series on energy every few years and like, um that there's a narrative somewhere that's a, like a good story, a good yarn you can hold on to that's actually going to teach people something. Um, sure, nuclear. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of questions about like nuclear. Seems I and saying I know nothing. <laughs> like I don't know much of anything about it. But but as a reporter, I am really curious because there's clearly a tension between the fact that it is. Uh, right, like Annie would know this better than me, but it's it's not a fossil fuel. You're not contributing to climate change. Um, it's a potential solution sitting right there. However, it's got quite a history <laughs> that would make anybody pretty nervous. So um, that's tension, you know, and that's that's stakes. And I think that's personally that's one of the things I always look for. And a lot of I'm not unique in this way. Um, people, the reporters, look for in a story. It's um, especially in this format, in this multi-episode narrative podcast space, you know, that's journalism and uh, based on real stories, you got to have something much bigger at stake um, than the lives of the individuals who are impacted. Even if those stakes are huge for them, it's typically got to feel like it means something much bigger. So, um, sure, we could do, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, I don't know enough about it, but it's something that is totally worth exploring, and I could see that happening in theory. There would there be no barrier to looking into it and trying to figure out if there was a story. I guess that to me that just illustrates that the you know the the team did this as an act of yes journalism and investigative reporting, and it wasn't a we're we're we really like wind, and that's why we're doing this five part series about it. No, because there was a story there. There is a yarn, like I said, and, and you wanted to tell it. Um, yeah, t- Taylor's post-it is absolutely perfect of just, yeah. Where is it? Where is it going? Who's going to benefit? That's beautiful. Um, can I ask about sort of the, 
the people who are doing good work in this space, the other people who are telling good yarns in the the climate space, um, who do you kind of look at as doing a good job? And I'm kind of curious if you kind of tend to look at more the PRX, you know, the work that NHPR is doing as well as, you know, other sort of the NPRs of the world as well. Are you trying to sort of apply the best of podcasting and audio storytelling to the climate space? Or is there anyone within the climate space who you kind of think is doing a pretty good, innovative, pushing the space forward job? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question because I feel like part of why I think that this series has worked is that it's not a super... I mean, okay, like compared to the true crime, you know, podcast industrial complex, like there isn't as much audio journalism about climate change and there, you know, even as much as there is, there should be so much more. And um, so, I mean, you know, I always think of big shows like How to Save a Planet from Gimlet. Um, Outside In was an early player in that space, but I'm happy to see um, some non-audio first outlets starting to do more use audio more as a medium to to tell this story um grist which is a really great um, nonprofit news site just did a project recently where they had um uh six basically it was oral oral history so like six voices from um very climate affected states in the u.s you know alaska louisiana there was a west virginia person in there about sea level rise um just telling their stories and that's a format that i'm really interested in would love to see more of just collecting the voices of people on the front lines of climate change and presenting them in kind of that you know science policy context that an outlet like grist is already doing um i think that's really smart and um and i think we're also just starting to see more um public radio stations devoting more resources to this and NPR, you know, our sort of mothership is devoting more resources to it as well. Um, I've been doing some work with some of my counterparts uh, in the network on um, wildfire risk in places like outside of California. That is kind of multimedia and it's excited to see people sort of being more creative with how they start to try to tell the story in like short and long formats because that's how you reach a broader audience and get people to realize it's already happening, which is really important. Yeah, thank you for those couple of examples there. And just before I go to you, Jack, on sort of, you know, what is interesting in, in this space to you. But uh, I was thinking about it this morning and I thought I've got a little bit of a confession to make the two of you that I, I've i been listening to podcasts since I was like 12 and it was, you know, political talk radio before that and books on tape and I'm just raised by audio kid. And um, when I got concerned about climate a few years ago and, and couldn't find much sort of climate engaged audio, finding outside in and being very excited about how to save a planet, starting my own things, I couldn't find anything in Australia, talking to normal people. I thought I was going to feel much better once I had more content about this to consume. And in reality, uh, the last week has been really hard for me on the uh the climate anxiety and climate grief front with seeing the the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest and you know, the the floods here in New Zealand and and just the list goes on and I thought oh it's not it's it doesn't actually feel better that everyone's talking about it now it just feels so undeniable and present <laughs> that it's now unescapable for more people so I guess maybe to throw to you Jack what, what uh, you work in the audio space you're amazingly accomplished in the audio space. Uh, what do you? Sorry. Did you hear that? Yeah, that's my son. Goat. I told you. Kid goat. Kid goat. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, cl- climate and audio. 
uh, what are your thoughts on sort of that intersection? Where's it at? Where's it going? I'm trying to answer your question as honestly as possible without sounding uh, snarky. I, 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 I can't name a narrative podcast about climate. I, um, and it's not because there's none out there. There could be some, but I, there's n- none that I know of. Um, um, if there are, I'd love to hear them, like for sure. As my listening habits go, I almost exclusively listen to narrative, like kind of chapter by chapter stories. And there's, you know, it's not really limited by topic. Like I don't, there's, I think that's the point with these, with that's what serial, right? Taught everybody is like, you know, one guy's story, whether or not he was actually guilty or not, is fascinating. You don't you don't have to live in Baltimore. You don't have to have stakes in his case. There there there's something bigger about the story. So that's what I tend to listen to. And so and there's a ton of stuff out there. You know, this last week I found the vanishing of Harry Pace by Radiolab, which is fascinating. Um, I would say I learn as much about how to tell a story about climate change from something like that as from anything, because it's really just about how to tell a good story. Um, like, oh, wow, listen to how they framed the problem that they had to deal with. Or, oh, it's interesting that they held that information back until episode two or three, right? Um, so, um, yeah, and I, I, I know that there are a lot of talk shows about climate change. I personally just don't have much patience for talk shows. It's just not like, it's, there's a couple I like, but not that much is just like my brain, the way my brain works these days. It's not what I'm too interested in listening to. So um, totally fair. Yeah. That's one thing in America. You don't get enough exposure to pundits and opinion and yeah. commentary, right? He's, yes. That's um, right. What, one thing yeah. that just reminded me of Jack, the idea that like you can learn as much about how to tell a climate story from a radio lab series. I totally agree with that. I've found that I'm even learning a lot about how to do my news work from our work on um windfall just in in how to pace things and set stakes and that kind of stuff um but i feel like there are there's so much good non-fiction in the climate space um you know seminal recent books like six extinction by elizabeth colbert and um water will come by oh god i'm gonna get it wrong jeff goodell is that right um and Naomi Klein and you know just like the all of the big names but like so many of those things work so well as a narrative podcast like the the um Six Extinction book is made to be a podcast and like it would be great to hear more of that it is a super resource intensive ask though I mean it is incredible the amount of work that's gone into this show just in the past few months that I've been involved of editing it, let alone two and a half years of reporting and they were supposed to go overseas and like all of the freelancers and fact checkers and editors that go into the credits. I mean, it takes a lot of time and money. Um, I didn't mean for this to be like a plug to, you know, donate to your favorite audio outlets, but like it really is the kind of work that that takes resources that don't currently exist or are going into other spaces and it would be great to spread some of that wealth you can't talk about great work without acknowledging what it takes to get it made so i I appreciate you did do that last night i got about a third of the way through bomber mafia malcolm gladwell's new book which is fantastic because it's sort of audio first and especially the audiobook format you know there's there's tape 
with uh, with his interviewees for the book, and there's you know some archival grabs, and it's it's just it's wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, you know, a Malcolm should absolutely do a climate book, but yeah, Naomi Klein and all these amazing authors should also be having these amazing you know audio adaptations. But yeah, it's um yeah resource intensive, but uh, I'd like to think there's an audience out there for it. Those are some really really good thoughts. I really appreciate you both saying that very much and it's cool to hear what the people i listen to listen to (laughs) it's nice so climate's been called uh, the third rail in like especially the u.s media context and i'm just curious if you agree with that or if you think that's sort of changed and you know if there's still any kind of threat or danger in it i guess it really depends on your circumstances and where you're working and in your your own context but like how how dangerous does talking about climate feel in 2021 in the media world that you move through i'm not sure exactly what you mean by by dangerous dangerous in the sense that if you broach the topic of climate will you lose credibility be seen as an advocate not be able to be seen as a a serious journalist i think the thing is i can't think of many topics in the united states that are not third rails at this point politics are so divisive like um issues are so divisive Um, so that doesn't really, (laughs) you know, I, I don't think we think of an audience as per se, like liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican. Um, and we definitely are conscious to not make specific editorial choices about a sentence, a paragraph in those terms, either like, will we scare certain people away, um, I, you know, the cliche is like a good story should piss people off on both ends, you know, um, because it, it, that's not a goal or something. But sometimes I, I, I have felt this way myself and I've talked to plenty of colleagues who say like, well, the people on this extreme end of this issue didn't like it. And the people on this extreme end of this issue didn't like it. So I probably did something right. And, you know, again, not a goal, <laughs> um, but sometimes a sign that like you kind of did a fair job of something that is divisive. I think that's what you really, that's, I think that's the goal with climate is, and anything else is you got to be fair to the facts and to the people who experience it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Cape wind episode, episode two of the show, my mom listened to it and said that um, it left her feeling ambivalent about the Cape wind saga, which we all took as a great compliment because it's a really hard needle to thread. Um and that I agree, though. I mean, I think in climate change journalism, especially, you you do want to kind of strive for that um, getting angry emails from both sides because there's no way to do it that doesn't get you angry emails from one side or the other. And it is a topic that can um, sort of earn you a reputation for advocacy in certain circles, but then in others, it will earn you a reputation for you know, never going far enough to tell the story. And um, I think that in really just the past, like, 18 months or so, it kind of coincides with COVID. But I remember at, at, right, even in the, the um, 2020 U.S. election cycle, so dating back into 2019, um, especially here in New Hampshire, where um, we're in primary mode for, you know, basically the other three years of every election cycle, mm-hmm. Um there there were starting to be just little changes that were bringing it more to the fore of the conversation. I mean, we had a confluence of of politicians were here, 
there was a new crop of young voters who were bird dogging about climate change and really cared about it and were coming to these candidates events and talking about it. Like I remember um, focusing on this theme a lot in like fall 2019 that we were starting to talk about climate change in new ways. Um, the huge fires in Australia happened around that time. And I remember at the beginning of one of the CNN presidential debates, they were doing like live updates of those fires during the debate, which just felt totally new and like unheard of for climate journalism to be that sort of front and center. So I think that it is still incredibly divisive, but it's also something has changed in the past couple of years where it's it's more normal to talk about it. It's not niche anymore maybe still a little bit niche in like tv journalism in the states i would say you are not hearing them say the words i think as often as you are in newspapers and um, radio and digital media but the dominoes are continuing to fall and um the you know idea of what objectivity means for climate change has completely shifted in a you know for the better in a way that allows us to say facts like climate change is real it's happening etc with journalistic certitude in a way that I couldn't like three years ago. I mean, I did, but I would have to defend them really actively to our audience. And it's just like, they don't, they don't ask about it anymore. There's a couple, you know, the the core group of denialists will still ask about it, but you don't have to, to think about them as much anymore. It's sort of become acceptable. Yeah. That has less power than it used to. Yeah. Which is which is gratifying and and encouraging. So that shift is still happening, but it's good, I think. You know, as you're saying that, Annie, what occurred to me is like um, bringing it back to to windfall to this podcast series. Um, climate change in this series is kind of like uh, th- I think that's one of the good things about covering offshore wind in this way is it's not a change that's relying on Congress passing a law. It's, you know, and so it's just happening because the economics work. Thank you both so much for your time. This has been extremely illuminating for me. Um, Great to geek out about podcasting and, yes, not have sort of climate be the be-all and end-all of this chat with you on a climate show for climate-engaged people. This is just, yeah, it's a chat about a really awesome mini-series. I'm so excited that I can listen to something of Radiolab quality about what's actually happening on this planet. It's extremely validating, I'd say. Thank you both so much for coming on, for all your work on this series, and for what's coming out next. I can't wait to the next three episodes and to finish up Windfall and and look forward to the next multi-year reporting project. (laughs) All right, I'll stop it there. It was my huge pleasure to have Jack and Annie on Climactic. And I want to say a big thank you to Jeff Umbro from the Podglomerate for reaching out to me and booking this interview. The fact that this came to me is mind-blowing. And I want to thank you, each and every one of you listening, for making this show a platform that was worth Jack and Annie's time to come on and talk about Windfall. 
There's going to be some changes to Climactic soon as the collective pivots into a proper podcast network. And soon there's going to be things like a listener survey as we become a bit more professional, a bit more official, a bit more grown up. So I just wanted to give you a super early heads up about that. And also, if you've got any experience in running listener surveys for a podcast, I'd love your advice. Reach me at hello at climactic.fm. Also, if you have any questions about this episode or any previous episodes, any critique or comments or advice, I'd love to get them. All right. Thanks as always. And wherever you're listening in the world, stay safe and take care of each other in these climactic times. Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.